Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. If you're wondering why Mark has been doing everything and I'm just preaching, it's because I've got about one more sermon left in my voice and then it is gone. So, um, we did all right during the first service, but I might have to pause and cough a little bit, preparing you for that. All right, Luke 2, 8 through 14. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The word of the Lord. Lord, we come before you this morning uh, as needy people. Just like last week and every week we come With our souls hungry to be fed, man does not live on bread alone, but on the words that come from you. And so feed us in this spiritual way. Feed our souls. Lord, to do that, it it requires an act of uh, your Holy Spirit. And so as we pray, as I pray every week, would you come and move among us, Spirit? Lord, I pray for myself just for stamina and uh, strength and uh, just practically that you would uh, hold my voice out here for this, um, for this sermon, uh, that I might proclaim to uh, your people your word and glorify you, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen. Kids, your word this morning is glory. A lot of glories in this sermon. Uh, so get ready, and uh, parents, won't you over lunch ask your kids why I chose glory, and let that lead into conversation. My scorekeeper this morning is Mr. Drew Banta. Hey, Drew. Stand up, Drew. Drew is the man. Drew is the director of facilities here at the church, and that is a huge job. As you know, we host a school Um, here at the church, along with the demands of the church, and he oversees the entire operation and does a fantastic job. So everybody needs to know who Drew is, and kids, or anybody who's keeping score, he's your scorekeeper. Drew, glory is your word. All right, you can say that. Okay, the the hymn that is going to set our theme, reminder, we're in an Advent series where uh, we are taking some of the beloved Christmas hymns and using them to set the theme each week. This hymn... Uh, The hymn this week is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Charles Wesley's Great Christmas Hymn. Unlike last week, the tune of the hymn is noticeably triumphant and victorious, as well it should be. After all, the lyrics were born out of the glorious moment that we read about in our passage, when the heavens break open and... The glory of the Lord fills the skies and heavenly hosts proclaim 
glory to God in the highest. It sounds very triumphant to me. Or is it? Because when you look at the event that the angels are actually celebrating, when you look at exactly what they are announcing, lowly seems to be a better adjective than glory. But what if that is precisely why it is so glorious? I want to share with you the worst Christmas I've ever experienced. Everybody has bad Christmas stories. I promise you what I'm about to share beats yours. If you disagree, come, come talk to me afterward. I was in St. Louis. I think I've told this story before, but if I have, it's been a long time. So um, most of you probably haven't heard it. But I was in sem- seminary in St. Louis, and um, I've got four days off to come home, do Christmas, and go back. Um, I'm driving home from St. Louis uh, for Christmas, and I get caught in a horrific snowstorm. It was, it was a blizzard, literally a blizzard. Um, and, and it got to the point where it was so bad, all I could do was barely kind of slide off the interstate onto some random exit in southern Indiana where all there is is a rundown gas station and a Best Western hotel. Walk into the lobby of the hotel. I promise you this hotel has never seen business like they were seeing that night. It was crazy with these weary travelers. I go to the, I go to the desk. I say, do you have a room? And they said, you're in luck. We've got one room left. Perfect. I'll take it. Just as they hand me the keys to this room, a young couple walks in. Uh, the woman's crying. The guy hurries to the counter and the worker says, I'm so sorry, sir. We just gave away our last room. Literally no, no room in the end here. The guy says, this can't be happening. We're supposed to be on our honeymoon right now. So I look at this poor guy and his sobbing wife and say, look, this might be weird. I just got the last room and there are two beds. <laughs> You're welcome to one of them. So friends, I kid you not, there is a couple out there that when they tell their story of their honeymoon, they tell of spending the first night at Best Western with yours truly. <laughs> By far the worst part was when we're there trying to fall asleep in just this awkward silence. I mean, what do you, you know, what do you do? What do you say? I could hear her just, she was kind of sniffling, trying not to cry. And what am I supposed to say? You know, good night, sweet dreams. I don't, it's a true story. I don't know why. I have no idea why this is what I came I just go, Merry Christmas. That's night one. I cannot get out of this hotel for four days. My Christmas was spent at Best Western in southern Indiana. The hotel staff couldn't get to us because of the snow, so we had to take over the duties of the hotel. My job was to clean the lobby. I cleaned the lobby. I ate gas station food for my meals. My Christmas feast was gas station food. I think that qualifies as a pretty bad Christmas. And if you think you can beat that, come see me. But, you know, as I look back on it, and I've said this before, in some ways, as crazy and awful as that is, that actually might be the most fitting Christmas I've ever experienced. Because when you think about the most wonderful time of the year, 
Of course, you don't think of Best Westerns on a remote highway exit. But then again, when you think of the most wonderful moment in history, is the nativity scene the son of God in a manger what you envision? We've, we've romanticized this whole thing. But step back and consider how anticlimactic, dare I say the word unbecoming, the birth of the Messiah truly is. The refrain of our hymn is glory to the newborn king. This isn't glorious at all. Or is it? It's certainly not what we would expect. But what we discover in the unexpected is something far greater, far more glorious than we could ever imagine. And this is what I would like for us to ponder this morning. We're going to let our passage do two things to us this morning. Redefine glory and then reapply glory. So redefinition of glory and then a reapplication of glory. Let's start by redefining our concept of glory. I'm sorry. Look at our passage. I want to briefly just point out the glory and, and, and gravitas of the approaching moment, okay? Because it's easy for, for us to miss this. Verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now let's just stop there. I don't know what you think of when you think of an angel of the Lord. But, but if it's halo, wings, and chubby cheeks, you're wrong. An angel of the Lord is a heavenly warrior of the Lord. A soldier in the spiritual battle of the heavenly realms. An angel is not cute. An angel is terrifying. Continue on. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now stop again. I don't know what you think about when you think the glory of the Lord. But if you think euphoric, mountaintop, heart, strangely warmed experience, you're thinking wrongly. This is the Shekinah of glory. The glory that brings sinners to their knees in fear and trembling. And if unmitigated, the glory that brings an end to sinners. The glory of the Lord is terrifying. Which is what happens to the shepherd. It says, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people... Listen to the description of the event. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, the glorious David, king of Israel, the one from whom will come the king of kings, is born to you in the city of David, a savior who is Christ, the glorious Messiah of Israel that centuries have been looking for, like we talked about last week, O come, come, Emmanuel, the Messiah. Who is the Lord? Kyrios in the Greek. This noble title in the secular world then only given to Caesar. But in the religious world only ascribed to God. The point I'm trying to make is that these few verses are dense with glory. As much as any in the Bible, honestly. And if you are unfamiliar with the story 
then I wonder what you might expect. I know it's impossible. I know in our culture, everybody knows this story. But just what would you expect if an angel of the Lord shows up and the Shekinah glory of the Lord surrounds you and there's an announcement that the son of David, the Messiah, the Curios, what glory is fitting such an announcement? Well, verse 12 is like a record scratch to the story. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's like, I'm sorry, angel. Did you, I must have misheard you. It sounded like you said we're going to find a baby in a manger. It's, you heard him right. The mighty heavenly warrior surrounded by Shekinah glory announcing the arrival of the long-awaited king of David, Messiah, Lord, points us to a newborn baby of poverty-stricken parents laying in an animal feeding trough. And make no mistake, heaven views that moment, this newborn with a freshly cut umbilical cord going to the bathroom on himself as the fullness of the glory of God. Look at what it says. Upon the announcement of this newborn in the manger, verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. So now the angelic choir has joined the scene. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. In the highest. This is the highest expression of God's glory. This is more glorious than any revelation of the glory of God you can find in Scripture up until this point. In our Old Testament reading, Isaiah spoke of this moment by saying that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. In Hebrews 1 This baby is described as the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. In Colossians 1, this newborn is described as the image of the invisible God, the fullness of God's glory. The consistent message of Scripture is that when you look upon the incarnate Son of God, you look upon the fullest manifestation of God in all His glory. So this is God's glory in the highest. Which means I'm going to take one exception to our hymn. It says, mild he lays his glory by. As though in the incarnation, Jesus forsook glory. Now I understand why Wesley wrote that and what he's trying to say. And in one sense, it is very theologically true. The Son of God did leave behind eternal heavenly glory. But the point our passage is making and the unexpected story that Scripture is telling is that this moment is not glory laid aside. This is glory in the highest. This is glory redefined. Unless you think that I'm reading too much into the manger scene... Let us remember that the manger was only the beginning. He never had riches, not even a place to lay his head at night. He fellowshiped with the marginalized, the outcasts of society. He proclaimed a kingdom where children were the model citizens, where tax collectors and prostitutes sat at the seat of honor. 
where enemies are loved, where poverty of spirit is prized, where those who seem popular in the world were rejected by the kingdom, and yet everyone who seemed to be rejected by the world became popular in his kingdom. His entire ministry was shaped by this redefinition of what glory means. And then even more humiliating than his birth and life, of course, would be the humiliation of his death. Falsely accused, unjustly indicted, shamed, mocked, tortured, banished to a hill where societies worse go to die, the cruelest of deaths, bearing the awful shame of my sin to die an abandoned death. So yeah, I, th- I, think, I think Bethlehem was a pretty accurate picture of the intentions of Jesus. It was the first moment of a redefinition where his lowly estate becomes his highest estate. Where his meekness becomes his majesty. Yes, his humility is glory. But what this does is it leaves us struggling with this redefinition because this is not glory like we're used to. And we are left asking why. Why is this glory to God in the highest? It's not what we would expect. It's not what we would have planned. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not what we even want our God to be. We want glory in the conventional sense. So why this? Well, the answer to that question becomes clear when we begin to apply this redefinition of glory. What I mean by that is is this. We realize what this glory means when we realize what this glory means for us. When we see the implications and applications of glory like this, it becomes truly glorious. And so what I want to do now is just spend some extended time in application. And I think in in applying this definition of glory, we will see why it is truly glorious. So we've redefined glory. Now let's reapply glory. Okay. What I want to do, very simple. I want to go through... um, I want to go through what you might be experiencing. Some will apply, some will not. But I want to go through where God, where you might be right now. Um, and I want to take this redefinition of glory and let it speak to that. Okay? I want to, I want to, repl- I want to apply this vision of glory to you. Let me start with the hurting here this morning. Whether that be physically, emotionally circumstantially, like a really, really, really bad place, circumstantially, whatever it may be to the hurting. Do you know what this new glory says to you and to your pain? That God actually cares. God is not a distant, disconnected, uninterested God of transcendent glory that does not care about and cannot relate to our suffering. Quite the opposite is true. He is now a God familiar with suffering and acquainted with grief. He is now a God who can say to you the hurting, I know how it feels. 
He is the God who himself gets involved, who enters into the misery of our existence, not just to relate to it, but to actually undo it. He bears the pain of the world so that he might heal the pain of this world. And only in this way can we say with confidence that this momentary affliction will give way to eternal happiness because our God defined glory as getting into the mess, I can say to you now that he can heal it and he will heal it. So bring your pain to this new glory and let it console you. To the lonely here this morning, I thought of this because for some Christmas is the loneliest time of the year. Do you know what this glory lets me say to you? God loves you. Not in a detached, uninvolved, transcendent, ethereal way. No, God is clearly into you. Does that language make you uncomfortable? God loves you in that way. God wants you in that way. I know this. Because of how uncomfortable this definition of glory truly is. He notices you. He wants you. He pursues you. Friends may forsake you. Parents may reject you. The person you wish would like you may not like you. But there is nothing your God would not do. No links he would not go to. Even a birth canal for crying out loud. To have you as his own. Oh, how much he loves you. So bring your loneliness. Bring your lonely heart to this redefinition of glory. And let it comfort you. To the indifferent here this morning, and I know you're here. Perhaps you're here out of cultural habit. Perhaps a friend asked you to come and you just feel guilty so you're here and you're just kind of like all right get it over with perhaps a child you're a child whose parents keep making you come to church you don't really want to be here perhaps you're a parent who doesn't really want to be at church but you got kids now and you think well i got to get them to church (laughs) whatever the case may be to you who are here but spiritually indifferent hardened maybe even bored Do you know what this glory allows me to say to you? You have stumbled upon something utterly unique and captivating. This is awesome stuff. Not a conventional religion. I, I do not have a conventional religion of a God who stands gloriously supreme over creation and demands you obey me or less or else. I don't have that to offer you. No, this is this is an epic drama. A story of a God who enters in to be with us and to save us. Not a God who says, be really religious. A God who comes for us in unthinkable ways to actually have a relationship with us. This is utterly unique. A captivating story of God's love for you with the enthralling news that you can join this story. You cannot make glory up like this. So bring your indifference to this glory and let it capture you. To the proud here this morning, the strong, self-righteous, self-reliant, 
Christianity is not something you desperately need. It's simply a good addition to the impressive resume that you've built for yourself. Good people are religious people. I'll do the Christian thing. Do you know what glory lets me say to you? You're full of it. You're lying to yourself. You may see yourself as better than everyone, but you're not. You may see yourself as really impressive, but you're not. In fact, you're so bad. You're so helpless. You are so in need. You are so desperate. You are so, dare I say, pathetic that God had to go to just ridiculously extreme measures to save you. This definition of glory is really indicting. This is what it took to get us. We must be really bad. Conventional glory now. That fits pride very well. Glorious God demanding you, you to be religiously glorious. You've never met a challenge you can't overcome and religion will be one of those challenges. That's not how God does glory. This glory indicts us all. Because we are so desperate. We are so helpless. We are so needy that God had to come to us and do it all himself. So bring your pride to this glory and let it humble you. But on the other end of the spectrum, to the despairing this morning, those of you who are opposite, feel you're beyond hope, all you do is mess things up and hate yourself for it. You probably promised yourself this year would be different. Here we are at the end of another year and same old, same old. Still the failure, still the same self-hatred, despair is only deepened. You know what glory lets me say to you? Indeed, my friend, you are a mess, but clearly you are a mess worth redeeming. So much so that God is willing to enter into the mess to deliver you out of the mess. And do you really think, despairing soul... That he would go to such extreme measures and fail? Do you really think he would do the whole feeding trough thing and not follow it through? He can and he will redeem what you keep telling yourself is irredeemable. So you bring your despair to this glory and let it lift you up. I could go on with these all morning. We don't have time and my voice can't do it. So, I'll just say this, because I know this one applies to all of us. More than anything, to all sinners this morning. Look, I get it. It's really bad. Oh, how awful we can be. Rotten to the core. (laughs) Tortured by what we have done. Burdened by by, by what we're continuing to do. Fearing what we may do. There is no denying it. I'm not here to sugarcoat things. I'm not here to convince you otherwise. It is what it is. It's true of me. It's true of you. Sinners. Do you know what this glory lets me say to all of us? Our sins, they are great. But our Savior is greater. Oh, how ruined and helpless we would be if our God was a God of conventional glory. A transcendent, 
perfect, glorious God demanding we earn our way to his glory. If that were our God, there is no hope. But this is not our God. The greatest glory of our God is that he is those things, but his transcendence is now incarnate. His holiness is in a manger. His righteousness is now bound to flesh. All to seek and to save that which is lost. So please listen to me, despairing sinner. He knew you were ruined before he came for you. In fact, it is because you are ruined that he had to come. The only hope we have is that humility would be God's chosen glory. That he would come do what we cannot do. And God in a manger says to you, dear sinner, that is what he has chosen to do. He has come to rescue, to be our substitute, to bear your sins, to suffer your fate, to go through hell's worst that you might receive heaven's best. So bring your sins, bring your guilt, bring your shame, bring your condemnation, bring it all to this glory and be rid of it forevermore. Now, isn't he glorious? This is glory. Charles Wesley originally wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He actually said it to a slower, somber tune. And I suppose that makes sense. After all, what could be more solemn than the creator of the universe confined to a manger? But eventually the hymn was given a new tune. The upbeat and triumphant one that we now love and know and will sing in a moment. And I believe this is more fitting. For nothing is more glorious than meekness. Nothing is more glorious than a God who has chosen his glory to be his humility. Glory to the newborn king. Let me pray. (coughs) Lord, we praise you that this is how you have chosen to define your glory. You are holy. You are transcendent. You are perfect. You are righteous. And yet... You have chosen to come and be chiefly known as the God of humility, love, and grace. We praise your name. We've heard it proclaimed to our ears, now proclaim it to our senses through communion. This meal that that does indeed redefine glory for us. May it feed and nourish our souls this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.